Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3, we're looking at Jonah today as a counterexample of what to do when you know the mercy of God. I'm going to change the reading a little bit in the bulletin. We're going to read at Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, and we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 3. So 3, 3 through 4, 3. Hear now the holy word of God. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. May God bless his holy word. Then turning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 3 through 7. Verse 7 is our text for this morning. So the words of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And our text for this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps you saw there was a, a legend of political talk radio who passed away this past week. Uh, he wasn't just a legend, he really was the legend. Most people think that it, 
really because of him, he saved the AM band. There may not really be much on AM radio if it were not for this particular figure. I grew up with this voice resounding through my home. Uh, my mom listened to his show, Rush's show, every day. And uh, so memories of my childhood. I remember being very young in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, hearing this uh, throughout the day. And I guess that would make my, my mother a ditto head. I didn't really know this, but um, that's what people were called to listen to his show and uh, who called in. They were just called ditto heads. There was probably a story behind that that I'm not familiar with. But it, the idea is there, um, the kinds of political opinions, cultural opinions that he was putting forth, uh, the listeners who liked him so much tended to agree. And I think part of the story was they would call in and uh, they would want to sort of rehash all the things they agree with in order to make it easier to say, I'm a, I'm a ditto head, I like your opinions, I tend to agree with you, you tend to kind of shape and form the way that I'm thinking about these political and, and cultural things, which he did in a very in a very talented way, and he was a very interesting guy uh, to listen to. And we think about who we are as God's people. The more that we learn about God, the more that we learn about who he is, and our own pursuit of godliness, it ought to be our deepest desire to reflect his character, to be like him, to be a, uh, certainly not a perfect, but a proper reflection of who he is and who is God what is he like this is why doctrine theology are so important to learn about what God is and how do we think about that biblically and how do we inform the way that we think about that in a thoroughly biblical way this morning what I want us to think about it is this since God often and repeatedly declares to us that he is a merciful God He's a God of mercy. What can the godly do but strive to be merciful like him? Since God often and repeatedly tells us that he is a merciful God, what can the godly do but strive to be merciful like him? Our first idea today is that a Christian lives in mercy. It is the air that the Christian breathes. It is the water that the Christian drinks. It is a life of mercy, not one's own mercy, but we live awash primarily in the mercy of God. All of these beatitudes are so wonderful and rich, it's easy to kind of lose the forest for the trees, but in order to understand uh, them, we have to see kind of how they contribute to the whole. We've been saying that Jesus is describing life in his kingdom, the life of his kingdom citizens. These beatitudes search us, they confront us with the vital nature of Christ's kingdom. This is how we are to live if we consider ourselves to be the people of God and of the bride of Christ, but we have to think about it in the proper way. They build on each other. They bring us uh, to particular foundational doctrines again and again. The Beatitudes point us to our need for redemption. It is a grace-saturated righteousness that Jesus is speaking about here. Where do we begin in the Beatitudes? We begin with our spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We move then to mourning over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, which is clearly the context of that second Beatitude. The mourning that we are to have is a proper mourning for sin. We are to hunger after a righteousness which 
we don't have because we are acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy. And all of this throws us back upon the truth of who God is. What is God like? He's a God who saves. He's a God who is filled with mercy and grace. Jesus, with each of these Beatitudes, is saying, blessed is the one. Blessed is the one. And when we talk about blessedness, we've been talking about having an indestructible joy. That's really what blessedness is. But what does that blessedness come from? Where does that joy come from? It comes from being a recipient of God's favor. It comes from being approved by God. You are blessed. You ought to have this happiness or this indestructible joy if God approves of you. If you are in a proper standing before God. No matter what the circumstances of life are. If you have this approval from God, you are what you can call blessed. It resonates with that New Testament passage in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? If you have God as your God, if he approves of you, you ought to possess and hold onto this indestructible joy. It's a joy grounded in a transcendent reality centered upon God. If you mourn for your sin, you will receive God's favor. If you yearn for the righteousness which he gives, you will receive his favor. And if you rightly value that favor, you will possess the single greatest possession that one can know in this life, which is God's approval and God's favor. It moves from a proper self-knowledge to a deliverance of self. We talked about spiritual poverty moving to a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The gospel delivers us from ourselves, which is different than the hope that the world can give. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to look to a Savior who's outside of yourself, who can accomplish for you and does for you what you cannot do for yourself. Today's beatitude, there's a change in tone. Jesus now begins to describe something that has more of an outward manifestation. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It's important to recognize that Jesus does not say, blessed are those who do merciful things, but rather blessed are the merciful. It's not a set of things to do. It's not a checklist, but rather a disposition. The Sermon on the Mount is so searching because it looks upon the heart. We are to seek by God's grace a disposition, a frame of heart that he gives by his grace. We're not born with this kind of mercy. It has to come through God's grace. And if we understand the context of these Beatitudes, we see that by the time Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, we have been living and breathing mercy up to this point. What is the significance of spiritual poverty? What is the significance of mourning for your sin? Because you're looking to the God of mercy. Mercy is the air that you breathe. It's the water that you drink. It is the very lifeblood of your soul because you realize and you know that you need mercy. The Christian, God's people, Christ's people, are people who live in mercy. Not only does a Christian live in mercy, but a Christian is merciful. A Christian is merciful. And here we get to the heart of Jesus' beatitude this morning. It's going to take us a while to develop this. This will be our longest point this morning. Mercy is compassion to help those in need. Biblically speaking, mercy is a compassion 
to those who are suffering the consequences of sin. This is how you distinguish between mercy and grace. Grace is sort of oriented towards sin as a whole and addressing the problem of sin. Mercy is compassion relative to the consequences of sin. So when someone is suffering the consequences of sin, mercy has compassion for that person and acts to relieve that person. One pastor says that mercy is a holy compassion of soul whereby a person is moved to pity to relieve another person in need. A person who's in need because of the consequences of sin. You get a phone call and a dear relative has cancer. That's suffering the consequences of sin because we live in a, in a fallen world. A relationship that you have counted on, falls apart, disintegrates, you're uh, experiencing the consequences of sin, no matter whose fault primarily it is. You're suffering the consequences of sin. Mercy seeks to relieve those who are suffering the consequences of sin because it is the sin of their own hands or the sin of another or the consequences of living in a world that suffers the consequences of sin because it is fallen, it is cursed. This is what mercy is. It's a frame of heart that moves to action. The heart of mercy is shown in the Bible perhaps nowhere more clearly than the Good Samaritan. A man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls at the hands of robbers. They leave him for dead. Three people pass by. First, there is a priest who crosses the road and passes by on the other side. The second is a Levite who does the exact same thing. Both of those men would have come from classes in Israel that are very religious and you would have expected them to act in a biblical way. And then a Samaritan comes along, the despised Samaritan. And Jesus says this, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, You go and do likewise. Mercy is compassion to help those who are in need. Jesus says, Go and do likewise. How do you do likewise? How are you to live in this way? What is it that fuels the life of mercy? A life of mercy will be fueled only as you see the wondrous beauty of the God of all grace. This is gospel living. Kingdom living is gospel living. Unless you learn to see and to glimpse and to grasp And to be in awe of the beauty of God, the God of all grace, the God of mercy. The life of mercy to which we are called will not have its proper fuel, its proper disposition and frame of heart. God reveals himself to Moses, and this is how he reveals himself. In Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the the Lord, a God who is... Merciful and gracious. That's the first word that God uses to describe himself. 
in Exodus 34. Psalm 86, Thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all which do call upon thee. Psalm 116, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. If you search the scriptures, what you will find is that God is merciful. Now, God is beyond our best thoughts of him, and in some mysterious way, he is always perfectly showing forth all of his attributes. And yet, if you take stock in scripture, you see that he puts forth his attribute of of mercy so that it is always near to the description of who he is. When you think about God, are you confronted with the thought early on that he is a God who is merciful, that he is a God who sees Needs as a result of the consequences of sin, and he addresses those needs. Thomas Watson has a wonderful chapter on the mercy of God in his book, uh, Body of Divinity. And I love Thomas Watson's writings, very, very practical, very accessible. He says this Mercy is God's darling attribute, it's what pleases him. The bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it is provoked, just so God does not punish until he can bear no longer. Mercy is God's right hand, that which he is used to. Inflicting punishment is called his strange work. Watson goes on to say he is slow to anger, but he is ready to forgive. And then here's what I think my favorite one from this chapter. He says, the vial of God's wrath drips but the fountain of his mercy runs in streams. God is just, God is merciful, but what is his normal work in the way that we have experienced him? It's his mercy. His mercy is free. His mercy is infinite. His mercy is overflowing. It is his delight. His mercy endures forever. Mercy will not define you It will not define your heart. It will not control your life in any free sense until you love the God who shows mercy, until you see the merciful God as beautiful, until you understand the desperate condition you were in with your sin and the help that he gave to you, until you see your need because of your sin. The help he gives us brings us to the apex of his mercy. In the Old Testament, we have the, uh, uh, the mercy seat, which is in the most holy place. It was the, the golden cover for the Ark of the Covenant. It was this lid for the Ark of the Covenant that became the place where symbolically and really the wrath of God is turned away from the people. It was in this one place in the tabernacle where all of Israel's hopes for their deepest needs rested. The blood the Day of Atonement would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. The theological term here is propitiation. That's an important word, a big word, but it's simple to grasp and understand. Propitiation is a word which simply means that which turns away wrath. A child disobeys, a parent's wrath is against, uh, against them until they show themselves to be sorry and desirous of living in a different way. Reconciliation Happens. Propitiation is that which turns away wrath. It was there on the mercy seat that God's wrath was turned away. And this is why in 1 John chapter 2, the apostle says, Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. He is the place where God's wrath is turned away 
from us. God has provided a place for his mercy, and that place is Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the apex of God's mercy. It is in Christ that God forgives us, speaks to us, comforts us, ministers to us, and nourishes us. And as we begin to study the life of Jesus, we begin to see what mercy is. Mercy is embodied in Jesus Christ in a variety of ways. He heals the sick, suffering the consequences of sin. He ministers to the poor. He tends to the brokenhearted. So in order to live a life of mercy, you must be totally in awe of the beauty of God. You must know and experience his mercy and his goodness in Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in that place of mercy? Once we begin to take stock in all of these things, we see how much God chooses to emphasize this attribute of his mercy. As God's people, we are to strive to be godly. We are to seek to reflect his character. We are to desire to make his name known in this world by the way in which we live our lives. William Hendrickson says, a merciful church is the greatest testament to the reality of the gospel. We experience God as one who sees our need and attends to that need. What is his people? What are his people supposed to be like? Merciful as he is mercy as he is merciful. Our Old Testament reading today, we see how foolish Jonah's heart was. We see how it's actually exactly the opposite of what we are called to do, of how we are called to live. Jonah says, God, I knew you were going to do this. I know that you're merciful, and so I was worried about this, that you would show yourself to be merciful to these awful people of Nineveh. That is exactly opposite of how we are to live in the shadow of God's mercy. A particular, particularly encouraging moment, there's a kind of a close circle of pastors that I keep in, in close contact with. And one of us on, I think it was Friday night, was called to a home of a, a non-Christian friend whose father was sort of on the precipice of death. He's called over to that house uh, basically to talk about the things of God, the ultimate questions, to share the gospel with this man who had lived as an enemy of Christ his whole life. That small band of pastors, we rallied around this brother. We prayed for him in those moments because all of us were so desirous to see this man who lived every moment of his life up until that point as an enemy of Christ, to see this man receive and know and experience the life of salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. Because if you have been shaped by the mercy of God, if you have known it, experienced it, you know that there is no ground on which you assert yourself. And you want others to experience the mercy of God. You want others to know what this God is like. Grace and mercy are amazing. If we are to be merciful, then we are to be merciful to the needs, to the names, to the sins, and to the souls of others. We are to be merciful to the needs, the names, to the sins, and the souls of others. First, uh, we are to be, to be merciful to the, the needs of others. First John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This can be a tricky thing because conversations about compassion and mercy in our world usually are almost exclusively centered around kind of material giving, the giving of, of money and oftentimes politics and government is figured into that. Oftentimes people take advantage of the situation that's been placed in our culture and, and we feel as though we're being cold-hearted if we don't give money every time we're sort of approached 
on the street. Two things I would say to that biblically, if we reflect on this biblically, that uh, it seems that knowing someone, having a relationship with them, seems to be primary and central in our working out of compassion. So in 1 John chapter 3, if anyone sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We should also, though, be filled with a frame of heart that wants to see the needs of people being met. But we cannot solve those problems on our own. And so I would say this, institutions are our friends in this way. It is a wonderful thing that God gives people the proper frame of heart to design and organize institutions and charities that do this kind of work for us. And we ought to have generosity to give to those institutions and organizations that we believe are doing good work to minister to the needs of people in the world. A relationship is important. Institutions are your friend. But we are to be merciful to the needs of others. We are to be merciful to the names of others. We are to seek to uphold the good name that others are trying to build for themselves. We are to hope the best for people. We are to believe the best for people. We are to see the best in people. Augustine had this reportedly engraved on his dinner table. It said, Whoever loves another's name to blast, this table's not for him, so let him fast. What does it mean to be merciful? We are to be merciful to the names of others, to seek to protect a reputation when we can, to hope the best for them. We hear something about someone who say, that doesn't sound like him or her. I'm not going to believe that right off the top. To not be a gossip, to not be engaged in slander. Merciful to their names. Merciful to the sins of others. This is everywhere in Scripture. When we are sinned against, what are we called to do? We are called to forgive. Colossians chapter 3. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgive as you have been forgiven. This is where we start to see particularly Christian character in our mercy. If you know the mercy of God, then truly you would be filled with the knowledge that no matter how poorly someone treats me, and we can be treated awfully in this world and in this life, no matter how poorly someone treats you, we have treated God worse. That's the foundation of gospel living. Forgive as we've been forgiven. We are merciful then to the souls of others. And this is really the highest part of the true calling of a Christian's mercy. Thomas Watson says, soul mercy is the chief of mercies. Our mercy in being worked out in our our lives is to look around and to seek the health of the souls of our brothers and sisters. We ought to be seeking to strengthen the weak with God's help and by his grace and with the truth of his word. We are to be seeking to restore the wandering with God's help and by his grace and with the power of his word. James 5 says this, My brothers, if anyone is among you and wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Being merciful to the needs of others suffered by the consequences of sin is to want to restore the wandering. We are to seek to raise up those who have fallen, fallen down. We are to do that chiefly by prayer. Christian is merciful. 
And the promise that Jesus attends to it is that a Christian will receive mercy. In Psalm 109, it says this. There's a curse that's called down. It says about a certain man, May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his, life a widow, and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Is the psalmist talking about a murderer? A serial murderer? No. Psalm 109, verse 16. The man has all these curses. Why? For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and the needy, the brokenhearted, to put them to death. The parable of the unmerciful servant has 10,000 talents forgiven him. He doesn't forgive the hundred denarii. And his master hears about it, has him thrown in prison. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We do not earn the mercy of God. But our lives of seeking to reflect the mercy of God by his grace is evidence that we have truly grasped glimpsed, experienced the beauty of God and the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Oh yes, we shall need mercy then. We shall need it at the end, at the day of judgment, when every one of us stands before the judgment seat of Christ and has to give an accounting of the deeds done in the body. For certain there will be things which are wrong and sinful and we shall need mercy in that day. And thank God if the grace of Christ is in us, if the spirit of the Lord is in us and we are merciful, we shall obtain mercy in that day. What makes me merciful is the grace of God. But the grace of God does make me merciful. So it comes to this. If I am not merciful, there is one explanation. I have never understood the grace and the mercy of God. I am outside Christ. I am yet in my sins and I am unforgiven. Indeed, the merciful will obtain mercy, but it is those who have found mercy, who have grasped it, who have tasted it, who are merciful. Here's mercy, the triune God of Scripture, Jesus Christ given for sin. Take refuge in him. Taste the sweet honey of God's mercy, which attends to our deepest needs. Let's pray. Lord, let your grace and your love do for us what fear of your terrors alone cannot Melt our hearts by that nobler principle and teach us to despise everything that would displease you. Let our hearts respond with the same kind of compassion that motivated you, Jesus, to serve the poor. Whenever we do make mistakes, let us err on the side of compassion, a love that would never harm the worst sinner, much less the least and weakest of God's servants. We consecrate our lives to you, even to death. We will not then feel the bitterness of death half so much when our hearts are ablaze with the zeal for your glory. Amen.